This is Kari Gale. And this is Tony Critz. Welcome to the Pilgrim Lost Podcast, a space for those who wander and wonder. Hey, good morning, Tony. <laughs> good morning, Kari. How are you? Good. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Yubuftamir, uh, which is Albanian for bon appetit, which oh. I don't know what that has to do with coffee, but... Is there one for like... Happy, happy, happy morning tea drink? No. So, um, you are, are you fluent in Albanian? Um, at one point I probably was, but now I'm not only not fluent, I'm barely stumble into a store and buy a bag of sugar. Hmm. Cause I just haven't used it. I, I, I moved out of Albania in 95. That's 25 years ago. Dun, dun, dun. You were just a wee child then, weren't you? Just a wee child. Just a wee <laughs> child. And now I am on the cusp of my 50th year. Oh my goodness. I know it's coming up so soon. I, I get to celebrate it with you. I'm very looking, I'm very, I'm very looking forward to it. If that is that is not correct English at all. Yeah, we're having a little dinner party. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. To yeah, so, the old man, as it were. The old man. And I look like it. Um Hey, so I um I've had I've had this question that's been following me around all week. It's been mm. following me around like a stray puppy dog. Oh, that's intriguing. What is it? I can't stop thinking about it. And I I've taken the time to ask a few of my favorite people. And so I want to ask you this question because it's bothering me. Okay, go for it. Question is, are you proud of your life? Ooh. I don't know that I've ever been asked that question. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting in a few conversations I've had with friends over the years, uh, because people ask me sort of how I ended up doing what I'm doing or living in a tiny house or what have you. It's, it's interesting. It's not so much that I'm proud of like what I'm accomplishing per se. I think it's more that I'm proud of the decisions that I made, these very specific decisions after I went through my divorce and made changes, big shifts. I took risks in my life and in taking those risks, I, I was able to, to start to do things that I really love to do that I, that I'd been dreaming about. And um, so it was really the, I'm proud of the decision-making process. I can look back and I can say, I know exactly how I got here. It was very purposeful, felt very intentional. And it doesn't mean that everything's happy all the time. I'm like living the blissful life, but, but my life has been very intentional and I'm proud of that. That's great. Now, don't get me wrong, up until it was really that, that sort of trauma of divorce that forced me into that space. It wasn't, it wasn't me being just this you know, amazing person that could make those things happen. So before that, my life really, I felt like my life was happening to me. And mm. so- yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I am. Um, interestingly enough, I know you'll be shocked by this, but I just read your book aloof. You read my book aloof that I, I wrote it. like seven years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Six <yes>. years ago. <laughs> um, and, um, Thank you. And I, the thing was, is you published this book right in the midst of my divorce, right in the midst right. of my, some really tough times. And I was not really in the headspace to read a lot that, at that time. It was more in escapism mode. And um, 
based on like our conversation with Karen last couple weeks ago, this idea. Yeah, our last podcast. Yeah. yeah, our last podcast where we where we interviewed Karen Thurston and she kind of walked us through her journey from, you know, as we put from Christian to heathen or from Christian to where she is now, which is still encountering God, but in a very different way. Right. And, um, and I knew we were going to talk today and I knew you had written this book. And so I cracked it open and just busted through it in the day and a half. And, nice. um, and it's your story of, of your own, your own faith journey and massive deconstruction and then reconstruction and then deconstruction. And then, I mean, there's no, <laughs> there was not one moment where you just, you arrived. It was this continual journey, this pilgrimage that you've been on your whole life. Right. And um, I mean, that's what we've been talking about, right? Life is pilgrimage. And I, I was really, really intrigued by your, first of all, your freaking vulnerability, dude. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there, there are things in there that I sort of knew bits and pieces of, but I felt like you were like, like, you know, opened yourself up on the page, like, like bleeding out in some places. And I felt like that was so, first of all, so powerful. And um, like, what led you to take, I mean, you're, you, you, you start the book and you talk about your nephew, Ransom, who mm-hmm. tragically passed away of cancer at the age of four. Four. D- but, died while I was writing the book. Yeah. And I really wanted to ask you, let's just dive in. I want to ask you some questions about this book because really, um, what, what would lead you, what was the, the, the tipping point where you're like, I'm going to tell this whole story. I'm going to tell this whole story and I'm not going to leave anything out of my faith journey because that that's how, I mean, with some of our closest friends, we don't tell those whole stories. Um, and you're doing it for not only you're doing it for everyone and putting it out in a published form where you can't take it back. I know <laughs> that's tough. Yeah. It's, it's actually, um, it's disconcerting to hear you comment on a book that I wrote, you know, whenever that was seven years ago, because, uh, I don't completely remember what I wrote, you know, Mm. and part of that is just the passage of time and having written, you know, hundreds of thousands of words in my life, um, that have been published. But, uh, it's also because I was, I was so immersed in finding my own truth or finding my own reality when I was writing it, that I was probably in a slightly altered state. And I don't mean altered, like chemically altered. I just mean that I was really going into sort of some mystical self-reflection at the time. And I I honestly need to go back and read my own writing so I can remember what was happening at the time. But I'll also say this, um, I was raised in religion. Okay. I I was raised going to church and I've been around a lot of pastors and religious people, and there's this thing that religious leaders do. And um, I think they come by it honestly, but the thing that they do is they feel compelled to be perfect. Um, It's extremely important that they have the answers and that's what people want them to have. And that's what people look to them to do. And so for instance, if a pastor is on stage and has to talk about 
a mistake that they made or a doubt that they have, what they do is they put it in the distant past tense. Mm -hmm. There was this time where I doubted X, Y, and Z. There was this time where I made this mistake so that the end of the story can be, but now I've got it figured out. So now, but now I've arrived or now blah, blah, blah. And I didn't want to write that book. I wanted to write the, I'm in the middle of it. The shit is up to my chest as I'm slogging through some of these questions. And, um, and that's what I try to accomplish. And um, hopefully I did. Well, you talk a lot about, um, in your early years, you talk about why you, like the, 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 the spaces that you lived in as, a, as a, a Christian. And then you talk a lot about faking it. Right. And, um, I'm going to read you a little passage, okay? Um, you can read to me from my own book? Yeah. Awesome. Do that? Um, I'm going to read, I'm going to actually read two passages and then I want you to comment on them. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. So, Stay tuned, everybody. This is the moment where it, this is the first moment in his book where he starts to, where Tony starts to um, sort of see it start to crumble. My doubt was not primarily about ideas. It was this, I doubted that the system worked at all. From the pulpit at the conferences and on the television, the language was so triumphal. Believe this and your life will be full of peace, hope, joy, and purpose. Just trust God and he will do the rest. I didn't believe those preachers anymore. I had witnessed the flash of white hot anger when the pastor yelled at kids running through the hallways of our church. I also sensed those leaders' unspoken doubts. I certainly knew those doubts in me. I doubted that God could be near. I doubted that I could feel spiritually alive, have peace, hope, joy, purpose. As the years went on, I feared that my faith was on a self-destructive course. So you go into this self-destructive space mm -hmm. and because of your being in that community, you start to fake it, even though you sense this very deep sense of disconnection. And I feel like there's a really distinct space between our generation and the generation now. I don't think there's a lot of fakers anymore. Hmm. Why do you think that is? I mean, I feel like there's a lot more youth that is willing to say, I don't believe this. I don't. And maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not in those churches now. So I don't know what those youth are doing, but I feel like there's a little bit of a, a generation between, because I have that same story in many cases. I was a people pleaser and I really wanted people to think well of me. And so I did right. what I needed to do. And I think in many cases you, you talk about wanting to please and wanting to, to be worthy. And um, do you think that that has shifted? Wow. There's a lot of questions in that. Um, I think, well, I think one, one difference is Cara, you and I are living now in a very different culture than the one we were raised in. We, we are living in a post-Christian place. We are, Portland is a post-Christian city, a post-religious city. And um, when I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, it was still very much, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it was still very much a sort of a church-oriented or highly church-valued culture. And so I, the reason our children are different today than when you and I were kids is because the parents are different and the, the broader culture is different and the demands are different. And 
I mean, I was in church every time the doors were open. I was in church three or four times a week. And for me, I was, I was a kid that, that failed everywhere else. Mm-hmm. I was scrawny and awkward and uncoordinated. And so I had a really time believing that a hard time believing that Tony, because you're very athletic and you're not scrawny. It was just, I, I really felt like I, I really want to see a photo of this young you because I'm, I don't know oh, that. It's, you. it's <laughs> embarrassing. Yeah, no, I was, I was very, I was a classic late bloomer. Mm-hmm. And so sports fields were places of shame and classrooms were places of shame because I, I was dyslexic and was not good at school and struggled and, quite frankly, conned my way through school just to survive. And, um, you know, I've, I was very self, I had a lot of self doubt. And so like social spaces were not very safe and certainly girls were not safe. And, uh, but church was safe and church was this place where I was okay. And I was liked and I was affirmed and, um, I was good. I was just, I was good at, you know, Bible quizzes. I just was like the one thing I was good at growing up. And, uh, so I, I couldn't lose that. I couldn't, I didn't, I didn't, that was my tribe and I couldn't bear the thought of being rejected by my tribe. So I learned to pretend that I was something that I wasn't during those formative years. But then you do, you do leave that tribe to some degree. You make that break and, and you enter your college years and, um, you reject it. But God, God, the divine, whomever you want to call it, was pulling you back in. And, and you, you share that story and, and you, start to, you start to view God in a different perspective. And one of the things that I noted in your book is you talk about this word participation. Right. And, and that was really important to you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like why that was really different for you? Um, yeah, so... Um, Again, I, I need to go back and read it, <laughs> but um, I think religion was something I was taught I was supposed to consume, like the life of faith and belief, spirituality was something to consume and was something to get right. It was something to have answers for people, you know, and to tell them that they're wrong. It's very important to tell people who were wrong that they were wrong. That's what the essence of it was about. It was about an us and them. It was, it was about a war. And one side needed to beat the other side. And then I sort of, so my big first paradigm shift, you know, happened like it does to a lot of people in my young adult years, is I realized that there was a great eternal spiritual play going on and I got to be a part of it. Um, It didn't mean. And another thing I learned is I didn't have to have the most important job. I didn't have to be the hero of the story. It was just, it was just fun to be invited to be a part of something larger, this, this play that was about goodness and beauty and discovery and interconnectedness and, and, and the game of hide and seek with the divine. The, the divine was, as, as, as Thomas Merton says, says the divine is like someone who hides and clears their throat, hoping you might discover where they are. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that that was part of the journey for me, a journey that I wasn't very good at. You know, a lot of the religious people that I knew, they talked about God being super tangible. And I was like, God's not tangible. I don't know what you're talking about. So it was a lot more, it was a lot more listening for the throat clear than anything else. 
Well, and this book is really all about all of the stories about you, you're sharing the times when you either encountered that voice, you heard that voice, but they're, they're rare. They're rare. They're these, these, these moments of, of, I, I just really appreciated how you would have a moment, you would talk about, you know, a, a crazy moment where you were a missionary in whichever country, I'm not remembering the country, there were so many countries, sorry. But you, you magically, you were trying to get this passport or these visas for this one young man and you were able to, it was a crazy story with like guns and it was, it was like a movie, right? And, and you come out of it and it was a God moment and it was what we would consider, we would all consider, oh my gosh, like God intervened. And yet you also, in every situation, you flip it back and say, how, how, does, how are we looking at this from a different perspective? So for example, one of the things that really struck me is when we pray for something, you suggested when we pray for things, do we think about what would happen for the other people on the other side if that prayer comes true? Like if our, I'll, I'll use a really you know, basic metaphor, but I'm gonna pray for my kids' softball team to win. Well, how are all the kids on the other team gonna feel? You know, I mean, that's a very basic example, but you used it in this very broader context and it, right. and it's true. And it, it, I think that's the thing about praying for prayer has always eluded me. And I think the way we were taught as young, young, you know, I was a cons in a conservative Christian family to pray was you prayed for your things. You were, you were, it was all about that individualistic nature. And I loved how you start, and you do this in your other book as well. You start to bring in this idea of global, like the, like how our Western point of view is so individualistic. And we, we kind of create God in our own image in that way. And you start to, as you travel and start to see these other communities and experience um, other ways of being, it starts to shift for you. And that idea of community becomes very powerful for you, and it and it invades your life in a really significant way. Would you say that? Yeah. No. Sorry, yeah. I got too excited. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, so many thoughts run through my head uh, in everything you just said, and you covered a lot of ground. Um, so I know this guy named Ken Lloyd who lives here in the city, and Ken's one of the most beautiful human beings. Uh, he's in his seventies. He spent his life working with youth in the streets. Um, he's this unbelievable cherub of a man, you know, covered in tats and piercings and just loves the forgotten, you know, loves these back alley youth that society wants to dismiss. And Ken once said to me, he said, um, and kids a very, very interesting Jesus person. I don't even think he would call himself a Christian, but he would probably call himself a Jesus person. Um, he said that Christian, he said the Jesus way makes, makes no sense the way we talk about it. And he says, take for instance, the Lord's prayer, which is this very famous, you know, piece of, of Christian liturgy, the Lord's prayer, our father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name very grandiose language, but there's a line in it. Give us this day, our daily bread. Give us this day, our daily bread. Very basic, exactly what I was taught to do as a child to, you know, pray before dinner is what that was about. You know, that God provided for us and we're happy and thankful. Give us this day, our daily bread. And then Ken said to me, 
that that prayer literally makes no sense until you figure out who the us is. Mm-hmm. And if the us is just you or the us is just your family or just your people or just your tribe or just people who look like you or just people who have your economics or people who'd vote like you, if that's your us, then, then Christianity is a joke. Religion is a joke. Jesus is a joke. So you have to figure out who the us is. And encountering people like Ken and becoming and like coming under his wing to submit to his wisdom um, completely tra- has completely transformed my understanding of truth, beauty, humanity, and whatever God's agenda is, which is something I wouldn't claim to know even as somebody who's been a student of the Bible, for instance, and other religious texts, um, whatever God's agenda is, it is much more poetic and elusive than what I was taught. That idea of the other is so powerful. And, you know, in today's current moment, days before this election, It's so potent. It's so potent. And there's been so much divisiveness that's happened over the course of these last few years, and especially in these last few months with everything going on in the world. And I, I feel like this divisiveness between the right and the left has, has, has very much in, in many ways been viewed as sort of conservative Christianity versus everyone else. And, and, and there's a lot and then that's a very simplistic way of putting it. But for me, when I traveled overseas, one of the biggest things that captured my heart was just, well, I wouldn't say it that way, actually. I would say the thing that was most um, impactful was being the other. And can I read, I'm going to read another passage from your book that is oh, just wow. back to this. Boy, you're just, you're just giving me the full, I mean, I'm, I feel so <laughs> thankful and, a little bit self-conscious. I know you're not used to this at all. I totally sprung this on you. By the way, I, you guys, I didn't tell Tony that I was doing any of this. We were just going to talk about deconstruction a little bit. So, haha. And um, you talk about healing, and you say this is this is part of after after Tony has been traveling and doing some very missions and and um, and been in other parts of the world. He said there was a part of my healing that required that I became what I hated. It was not enough to love from afar. It was not enough to pray with unexpected compassion. It required that I live in their space, that I don the trappings of their culture, that I walk the rhythm of their world. Maybe, and I'm gonna skip a little forward. It says maybe radical changes, he's talking about Paul. Maybe those radical changes helped him constantly process his prejudices and break out his stagnant ruts. Maybe he found God in the other's world. And then go on. There are many groups that I have been taught to hate throughout my life by my religion and my culture. Blacks, Muslims, liberals, and homosexuals, to name just a few. The efforts to divide people are certainly not in short supply. My hatred for those people, for these people, is real if I only have the courage to admit it. The only real hope I have is that God will manipulate me through my prayers and my choices, that I might find the place of love, present love, walking with love, Jesus in the flesh love. To make that happen though, I may have to walk a mile in the other's shoes. 
and that could be the death of me. Lord have mercy. Okay. So this idea of being in the other shoes, I think it's something that's in such short supply right now. And we've talked about this on Pilgrim Lost. I think it was the Christmas episode where we talked about trying to understand where someone else is coming from in order to have compassion. And that experience for you, like, I think from the person that I know now, because I didn't know you then, like, I feel like that completely shift, like that's how you, where you live from in your faith, that other, I mean, I mean, it's not natural for sure, <laughs> because I know you, I know, I know humanity, but how, how do you feel like in, in your pilgrimage of faith, like that, that constantly trying to put yourself, walk a mile in someone else's shoes? Is it something, I mean, it's something that we, we talk about a lot, but do we actually do it? Like how? Yeah, well, uh, whatever steps in that direction I've taken, I have taken reluctantly and they have been done to me much more than me doing them. Um, so here's a story. So Kari, you know that, you know, we live in a 2000 square foot house here, right in the center of Portland, right? Right in the center of the city, just off the light rail line, just across the river from downtown. And because of that, uh, I have a family of five, but, it's we were we were convinced especially when the boys were young that there was room in our house for more people because there's a lot of people who need affordable housing and so we started to open our doors to people and um had, and i remember and i thought you were crazy okay so we you know we probably had 25 different people live under our roof over about you know a eight to ten year period but um you know, Josh and Leslie and Allie and all these great people, many of whom you knew uh, back in the day. But at some point, my wife and I, we realized that we, that every person who had come through our door was just like us. They were all middle-class, white, college-educated churchgoers, um, you know, with, uh, with slightly progressive leanings politically. You know, they were, they were just us, you know, and over and over again, all we, all we could attract people just like us. And so um, at one point, I just made, I just sort of threw to the universe that um, I realized that I was inherently broken, that I only had the capacity to be with people who are just like me. And this was after, you know, living in the Muslim world for years and stuff. And I still was, was so stuck in this rut. And soon after making that sort of declaration to the universe, um, there was a knock on my door and I opened the door and the, the light coming through the door was eclipsed by this huge six foot five Mexican American standing in my doorway who I did not know. And um, he asked if he could stay with us. Out of the blue. Yeah. This first generation immigrant Mexican American standing in the doorway who had who had journeyed from texas west texas east texas to portland and he had found our house and knocked on the door and um we invited him in to stay a night or two and he ended up staying for three years i i have no explanation 
for Ovi. Like how Ovi ended up in Portland, how Ovi ended up in my home. And so um, I just, I tell that story because I, I have a, I don't, I don't give myself any credit. You know, Ovi was, Ovi was the Messiah to me, not the other way around, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. I mean, that is the essential message of your, your other book, uh, Neighbors and Wise Men. And this idea that, that the other, what we perceive as the other is really the, the best and greatest teacher about our faith to us. Yeah. And, um, which you guys, I highly recommend. I'm going to put the, uh, I'm going to put the links to both of these books in the, in the episode notes so you guys can check them out. But the, well, you say you didn't, you didn't do anything, but you invited him in. That's the thing. Most people would not have done that. So there's a whole, I mean, I, I know you're, you're, I know how you are and it is, it's not a false humility, but like, but there's 99.999% of the people would have been like, Hey, here's the, here's the place down the street where you can stay. It's a, you know, a shelter or what have you. So for you to open your home up, I mean, I always was really humbled by that, that you, that you did that. And, and I know it wasn't easy for sure. You know, you know, I'm, I've heard the story, all the various stories and the challenges that you guys, you know, in that season of your life you engaged in, but, what in the and i kind of want to switch topics now i want to go i want to go a little bit more into this idea of perhaps like church church mm-hmm. all right and the reason why is karen talked a lot about her deconstruction in in areas of church you know what i mean and oh, sorry I keep bumping myself um this idea, and you and I have, we've, we've, we've been in church together in various, various times and places in our life. Um, and I think there's a big, it's an interesting, because right now in this moment with COVID, I think there's this shift happening that is, um, people are, well, with all aspects of their life, people are sort of reconsidering what's important, what's priority, and what, what they maybe have been doing or engaging in that isn't necessary or what they're missing and they need to engage in um, because there's been this momentary like pause for all of us to, to kind of reevaluate. And you and I have gone to church together and, um, and I, I'm going to be totally honest. Like I'm, I struggle with why, why do we need church? Why, why is it necessary? And, I won't go into this at all, but I've always had one foot in and one foot out. I've never really, really engaged in a church body. A huge part of that was my growing up and my father's point of view, but I'm, I'm always ready to flee. <laughs> I like the participation bit, but I always have one foot out the door. And, um, and I'm struggling to, to, for my own self to see what, what is nest, what, what are the pieces of my spirituality that I want to carry forward? I'm curious uh, what you, how you're thinking in this season and what things you've sort of been pondering as, as we've been going through COVID and church and no church and, um, and, and just even in your faith as you walk forward. Yeah. Wow. That's a huge question. Um, so, so everybody goes to church. Let's start there. Everybody goes to church. Um, and I hope 
I hope everyone is enjoying this conversation. And if this conversation feels like a Christian conversation, I apologize. Please forgive me. Because um, I really, I really want to talk about the universal human experience. And we all go to church. Some of us go to a church with a cross on the wall. But other of us go to a church with, um, with bourbon bottles lining up behind the bar. I mean, we all go to church. Some of us, some of us church is kickball league and some of us church is the Kiwanis club. And some of us church is our graduate school. Like the, the church is an attempt to, um, to, to curate these, these basic human needs of our spirituality. And one of those needs is interpersonal connection and something that actually church is pretty bad at because by and large, when people go to a church church, a cross on the wall church, it is, it's, it's an experiment in staring at the back of another person's head, it's, which is weird, which I think most of the great religious teachers and spiritual people of human history would go, that's weird. You know, that this experience is primarily 90% staring at the back of another person's head. Um, so like for us, part of our COVID plan, part of our family's COVID plan is we've, um, we've joined with two other families and we do, we do occasional nights together that, that involve intentional meal and intentional conversation around the, the important questions of life, purpose, meaning, um, uh, struggle, um, needs, uh, requests for help, um, existential crisis, all that stuff. And, um, we're not doing it weekly. We're doing it like once a month, but that sort of filled that interpersonal connection and the, the dialogue side of it. There's another part of church and I'm not, I'm talking about all churches at this point is the, the necessity of ritual. Mm. Um, we, we need ritual and actually Western culture has deconstructed ritual to the point that it's, I think it's been really, really, really destructive to the human soul. Um, ritual has been reduced to mere ceremony and when it's only mere ceremony, uh, it's very, very difficult for humans to step into the larger story to live the millennia simultaneously with the present. And um, I'm actually reading this book. I can't remember the author, but it's called... Um, king hero lover magician it's about the Jungian categories of masculinity mm. and the author argues that one of the reasons why we have so many adult boys running around who have never become men is because they have lost ritual we have removed ritual from their lives that those moments that tell them that they're men that they're grown up that they're responsible that they're mature that there are these things, there's these, there's this millennial story that they are stepping into and they're, they're, they're receiving the baton of, of being a, a good human being. They're receiving the baton from their uncles and their great grandfathers. And, and we've, we've just lost that part of the human story and, and faith curates that part of us, you know, and it helps, it's supposed to invite us into that. And it just does, we're doing a really, really crappy job at it. And then, and then connected to this is one thing that our society has completely lost is its connection to history. We live in a world that is 15 minutes old. 
We live in a world where a Facebook post disappears 20 minutes later. We live in a world of YouTube videos. We live in a world of instant gratification. We live in a world where if I want news, I can have it right now just the way I want it. And not only that, but exactly from the perspective that I want it to be from in this moment. That's the world we live in. Most of us don't even know our grandparents. In fact, we have an entire society that hides away old people because we don't want to deal with them. We stick them in institutions and we entertain them there in order to get them out of our lives. We have no history. We have no old buildings. We have no old texts that we read anymore. What do we read? We read things that were written 15 minutes ago and then they're tossed away. When was the last time you read a book that was written 50 years ago, let alone 500 years ago? You know, it's what's now, it's what's on the New York Times bestseller list. That's all that matters. That's all that anyone's talking about. You've never seen an interview on CNN about a book that was written 10 years ago. It's a book that was written 10 minutes ago that, you, that they interview about. Why? Because that's all that we care about. And one thing, that, and one thing that, that religion, and please understand, I'm talking about the best parts of religion, is it curates history. You get to step into something that is 2,000 years old, 1,500 years old, 3,000 years old, and be a part of it and, and recite the words that have been said every generation for 2,000 words over together and, and step in and join the chorus and sing with them. You know, this goes back to our Camino discussion. Exactly. I was just getting all excited because we talk about this, like, why do people want to walk the Camino? Because you're stepping into these, this ancient, ancient way. It feels profound, regardless of your faith background, regardless if you're an atheist, you want to step into this space that brings you like what we talk about, that bigness and smallness at the same time. And we don't have that anymore. And that is right. why droves of people go walk the Camino. And the Camino is church. It doesn't, it doesn't pass churches. It is church. The, the ritual, absolutely. the discipline, the interpersonal connection, the rhythm of the day, the celebration of the historical, the sharing life with generations past, the movement towards a destination that, that, that has the story and, and liturgy and sign and symbol all attached to it, all of which have been curated over hundreds of years. That's church. Yeah, exactly. I think... I think that 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 in when people when people talk about their experience and they they we all struggle to talk about what it was like on the Camino because it is so um, there's so many pieces of it that feed into that um, that magical space this mystical space and when you don't have I think partly because exactly what you're talking about we don't have words to express it because we're just not used to it we we don't know it's almost like a it's a completely other language that we haven't learned how to speak and when we enter into that space we experience it but we cannot almost can't share it it's like that's why people oh you have to go you know and um I think you know just after having experienced that type of church, I think in many ways, you know, the, 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 from my, you know, my faith perspective, when I go into a church, like for those things, I'm finding some of them, but I struggle because uh, I want that fullness that I experienced in my pilgrimage and I'm not necessarily finding it. And I'm not, I'm not, that's not a that's not bashing 
the faith communities that I've attended, but, um, but I've struggled. I've struggled to, to find, to find what I'm looking for. And, um, and it, it isn't necessarily, I think, I think maybe if I was to talk about my faith in a, in the pilgrimage, I think I'm on the Meseta. I feel like, I feel like I've been on the Meseta on that long plane. That's that long kind of walk where you're, there's not a lot changing, but it's, it's pretty flat. I don't know. I, 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 um, I was interested as, as I finished reading your book where you go through a really intense time where you basically left like the ministry completely. And, um, I don't want to, I don't necessarily want to dig in deeply there, but I, I feel like you in, in your deconstruction, the, kind of the biggest thing that I, I wrote down is, um, I wrote down this quote, it said, am I doing enough is the language of insecure faith. And it feels like at the kind of end of this particular pilgrimage in this book, you came to a place where you let go of the doing and the proving and the being worthy and you started to learn how to rest. And that I'm curious is, is if that space, are you, do you feel like you, you inhabit that space a lot? Is that something more consistent or do you find yourself still going through those cycles of ups and downs? I mean, faith is so complex. Yeah. So resting, yes, but resting becomes passivity really quickly. And I fear that I live more of a passive life now around some faith stuff. And a part of it's, I think I'm tired. I think I'm old and tired. I'm, um, you know, in the giving tree, there's that moment where, uh, the tree wants to give to the boy and the boy keeps coming back and, um, taking from the tree, you know, first takes the apples and then takes the branches and then takes the tree's trunk in order to build a boat and see the world. And in the end, the boy returns to the tree, an old man, and the tree is just a stump and the tree is a little embarrassed that the tree has nothing to give the boy because the tree has already given all that it can to the boy. And then the boy says, I don't need anything. I just want to rest my weary body. And the, and the, the tree that is now just a stump sort of like straightens up as straight as it can and says, well, a stump is a good place for sitting. And uh, it's, a it's a metaphor of the divine is what the book is about. And, um, and I'm sort of there, I'm just sort of like, ugh, you know, I'm just kind of tired a little bit. And, um, but I don't, I don't necessarily want to stay in this passive space. I really don't. And so I'm, 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 and part of it's probably COVID part of it has been, um, this book and we just, you know, experiencing death with several people that I love and, um, some career disillusionment and some different things where I've, I've really had a hard time finding inspiration and so much of faith life is uh, searching for inspiration. And I just, I, 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 I struggle, I struggle in that area. And so I'm hoping, I think that's goes back to the beginning. Are you proud of your life, Kari? And I would say right now I would have to answer, no, I'm not. It's not there aren't elements of my life that I'm proud of. I'm very proud of my children and their things, but 
um, by and large, I go, I'm still no, I just don't know that I'm living well. And I, 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 will, I long to live well. I think that's part of why we're here and what we're called to figure out. Can I, can I read one thing to you? Yeah, please do. So um, one of my favorite characters from this generation of human history is Mother Teresa. Which I read that you met her. Yeah, I did. Oh my gosh. I did have a chance to meet her. <clears throat> Mother Teresa once wrote, she was writing to this fellow Reverend Michael Von de Piet, so a friend of hers. And she said, Jesus is a very special love for you. As for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, listen and do not hear. That was her summation of her faith life. That for her faith, it was about silence and emptiness that is so great that I look and do not see, I listen and do not hear. And I, if anybody is reverable from the 20th century, in fact, um, I think it was Gallup did a survey of who is the most revered person of the 20th century. And, and when they went out and you know surveyed people, it wasn't Martin Luther King Jr. and it wasn't Gandhi and it wasn't JFK, you know, and it wasn't John Lennon. It was Mother Teresa. She was the most revered person of the 20th century. And yet when she talked about faith, it was about emptiness and longing and silence. That's what it was for her. And yet she she persevered in Calcutta among the world's forgotten, and we love her for it. Rightly so. Yeah. Mm. So when we hear nothing, when we feel nothing, we're in good company. <laughs> yeah. Really good company. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of us are feeling right now. I think a little, like we're all of us right now are feeling that really that that distance that silence it's hard it's hard right now yeah yeah hmm. thank you for letting me letting me quiz you letting me <laughs> thanks for asking about <laughs> and read quotes uh this has been really fun and it's been um it's been good to hear your thoughts is there anything else that you would like to add, Tony Chris? Well, I'm going to send you PDFs of the illustrations from the book. The book has illustrations of That's the hero's journey that you can, that hopefully people will see at least an example on the Pilgrim Lost website. Absolutely. And the artist is Jonathan Case. And Jonathan Case, who's amazing. They're gorgeous. I, I'm actually, I'd love to, I think I'd like to post all of them. Um, and then, and then we'll use one, we'll use one on our social so you guys can get a glimpse of it and check those out. But um, I highly recommend reading aloof. It's a good time to read something about this, the silence and distance of the divine. It's when it's feeling hard and um, knowing that we're walking together in this and that, you know, I mean, our tagline is get lost with us. So <laughs> how appropriate is that, right? Get lost with us, pilgrim lost. Thanks guys, thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you for walking with us. To stay connected, visit us at pilgrimlost.com. 
please comment, share, and respond.